Remember when we got through the 2018 election cycle without any sort of hack? Well, we were quick to pass judgment. We talked to Rami Assad from Distill Networks on his battle with bots in our feature interview. Flaws in open source containers, nine-figure user-level data breaches, and weaponized emails. Of course, it's just another week in InfoSec. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for December 7th. I am Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel. Greg, it looks like we're going to talk about election security again. Just when you thought you were out for the year, Jen. Is there anyone else that's left to be hacked? I'd, I'd rather not name names. Fair I'd, enough. So as <laughs> we've heard time and time again, too, bots are becoming more and more of a problem. And in our feature interview, we'll talk to Rami Assad from Distill Networks about how companies can win the bot battle. But first, let's talk about those pesky emails. So like Greg said, it turns out that 2018 midterms did not pass without a major breach. Email accounts tied to the National Republican Congressional Committee were hacked, compromising thousands of emails. Cybersecurity firm CrowdStrike began looking into the breach in April, and the investigation is ongoing with no culprit publicly identified yet. While U.S. election officials hailed progress in security in the 2018 midterms, it ultimately wasn't enough to become away unscathed. An added wrinkle is that President Donald Trump has publicly taunted the DNC for the breach and claimed that the Republicans had stronger cybersecurity. In July, Trump told CBS News that the DNC should be ashamed of themselves for the 2016 hack. Greg, are you surprised this stayed silent in what happened in April? Uh, yeah, I am surprised that this stayed silent considering it happened in April. April feels like it was 10 million years ago. Because it's so and, 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 Well, not only that, just with everything that has transpired. I mean, yeah. think about some of the things that we have been talking about. Facebook's big problems this year come to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, even just all the breaches from last week. I mean, we've talked breach after breach after breach. And then all the talk about election security that we have spent since we started this podcast. I mean, that's another good way to look at it. This breach happened before this podcast started. Yeah. So think about it from that perspective. It's just astounding, especially in D.C. and all the noise around uh, campaign security mm-hmm. and election security that this didn't leak out. Now, I think what is interesting about it is the fact that it there was no sort of information operations attached to this. I mean, we like we saw in 2016, the emails were hacked, but they were dumped immediately out mm-hmm. for people to kind of pour through and dig through for juicy stories. We didn't see that around this time. We know that there was a loss of data, but we haven't heard anything about it. Interesting. So this looks like it was more of a recon type thing. Like it was definitely something done for reconnaissance and for espionage and not necessarily to stick a thumb in uh, the campaign process's eye. I imagine we'll learn more about it in the 2020 election. So – Back to breaches, popular question and answer site Quora discovered that hackers broke into its system and took data on 100 million users. The company announced in a blog post Monday that it discovered data was compromised by a third party who gained unauthorized access to one of its systems. The company says that the data taken includes, you know, all of the hits, names, email addresses, but, and this is a big one, encrypted passwords, along with data imported from other social media networks. Data related to the site, including upvotes, downvotes, questions, answers, comments, and direct messages could also have been accessed. Jen, were you among those that got tipped off to this by the actual notification going out on Monday? 
I saw that, but I guess, I guess my question is like, what's the real downside to this compared to like other hacks? Well, I think that uh, the passwords, the passwords well, being yeah. out there, even if they are in, encrypted, I'm sure that they will be used and sold and possibly, uh, you know, turned around and, and they'll decrypt them somehow, maybe. Um, but this other data, I mean, it just goes back to the credential stuffing thing. Like it goes back to the Dunkin' Donuts hack that we were talking about. <laughs> um, and this information can be cross-referenced in sure. any other yeah. any other site that takes uh, login information. And this can sort of be just, you know, brute force, those jammed attacks. And that's what these criminals do, just kind of stuff everything into these sites and see what comes back. Um, yeah, Quora isn't necessarily sitting on a gold mine right. as far as data. But uh, also it goes back to the, the linked social media networks. We saw how in, in one of Facebook security incidences earlier this year, the hops that you could go through via the tokens that were leaked. This could be a combination of that too with the information and, you know, what it, it all depends on what Core's API was pulling from the APIs of these other social media networks. There's a lot of information that can leak through that. So this this is not the worst breach in the world, but it's, it's I mean, 100 million users is still pretty bad. That's a lot of information. I mean, it seems like it's a it's a good idea just to have a different email address for every like online account you have. Or with a different password. Just yeah, different passwords. Use a password manager, and and that can help limit your risk. So speaking of companies that want to limit their risk, <laughs> companies have begun to enter into strategic partnerships with cybersecurity startups, which can often offer products at cheaper costs and more flexible terms than established market leaders. Companies like Aetna and New Jersey-based telecommunications firm IDT Corp. are aggressively experimenting with services coming from security startups, sometimes even stitching together technology from multiple distinct organizations. Security officials from both companies spoke with CyberScoop on how they are leveraging the startups, including by investing in them, which is helping them also with their security. Jen, this is this is an interesting story for us. I'm wondering if you talk with any of your companies about possibly exploring partnerships like this, where it's not necessarily just a technology firm, but it's somebody from a different critical infrastructure sector that's not only looking to get into business deals with them, but actually mm -hmm. invest in the company. I mean, we definitely have companies in our portfolio that do this. I mean, I think it's, it's usually pretty interesting. It's a great way for um, a company to have all of their clients more secure. Um, and it's also a great um, way for early stage companies to get a, you know, a, a line of revenue that potentially is pretty big. Um, you know, the downside of that is you're taking um, an investment from a corporation who has competitors that probably won't be your customers going forward, um, depending on how that deal's written, which is, is sort of what you have to be careful of. But I think we see um, cybersecurity startups sort of stitching themselves together, right? I mean look at any of the parties for an RSA or a Black Hat and you see it's hosted by five or six companies with technologies that are all complementary together. And you'll see them go and sell to bigger corporations together. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, the deals that come from these bigger companies. Is it something that is iterative or is it something from the outset where a company, I'm trying to think of one around the DC area, hypothetically like Mars, 
for instance, Mars Candy Bars. They have, you know, their security apparatus, but they come to a startup and say, we're going to buy something. And then maybe if we like it, we'll invest in your company. Or is the company from the outset going, no, you know what, let's just bring your technology in-house, but we're also going to bring our dollars to you as well. So I think we see it in two ways. So I think as you look at like a really early stage company um, that needs the capital sort of outright, sometimes you see um, these corporations invest in invest in the startup as they're buying the product so they can really influence um, what that product's feature sets looks like. Um, they put investment dollars in and they can you know, really sort of demand things that work for them best. Um, but then you're also seeing companies that um, are taking, you know, Series A, Series B, and then you see a strategic come in um, and put money in. Um, and usually that's an early indicator that that company is courting to, to just outright buy the company. Cool. So speaking of big companies that, that buy cybersecurity solutions, <laughs> um, Microsoft and MasterCard announced a partnership looking to create a universal identity management solution this week. Current identity management schemes requiring users to remember or store their passwords, social security numbers, password numbers, and, and, and other pieces of data are while clearly not working as well as they should. The initiative aims to find a solution that's interoperable across platforms and borders in partnership with other companies and governments. It's not clear yet what solution would look like, but MasterCard and Microsoft pose that such a solution can help reduce payment fraud and even give underserved populations better access to resources like health, financial, and social services. The companies say they'll reveal more in coming months. Greg, what's the deal here? Um, not really sure, to tell you the truth. I mean, it sounds good in principle, but uh, without the actual technology out there, I mean, who knows what this could look like? Are they going to bring in other third parties? Is this something they're going to develop in-house? And what exactly are we talking about here? Because when you talk about identity management, you're probably trying to leverage some type of other indicator of identity that's already out there, like the passwords, the social security numbers, the passport numbers that are in all of these breaches that we're talking about. So what exactly is going to go on here that is going to differentiate from any of the other identity management solutions that are out there? I mean, who knows? It just seems like it's it's interesting in that these companies, Microsoft and MasterCard, are getting together. I just wish there was more out there, more than just, hey, this sounds nice and we're going to do it. I'm like, oh, oh, okay, well, I, I mean, who else is doing yeah. this? Everyone else. Well, I mean, a lot of people are doing this, right? I think if you look at, at Gartner's numbers, um, this is probably the hottest space for next year with the biggest amount of spend happening. But, I mean, let's be honest, like the two-factor authentication, when you get a text on your phone to enter in a code in with your password, I mean, I can spoof your phone and start receiving those texts. Right. We've heard uh, right? about mean, SIM jacking uh, time and time again yeah. this year. So that is has its flaws on top of it as well. So something needs to change. Well. Right. No, something needs to change and – you know, good for Microsoft and MasterCard for coming together to try to figure it out. I just wish they had more details to go to press with before they made this announcement this week. So while the Nigerian Prince email scams might not fool many people anymore, they've grown more sophisticated and industrialized, increasing the chances of actually duping email users. A case in point is London Blue, a group of scammers that email security firm Agari exposed earlier this week. The group has used data brokers to harvest a list of 50,000 corporate executives worth targeting, Agari said. 
And a quote that they gave us, the pure scale of the group's target repository is evidence that business email compromise attacks are a threat to all businesses, regardless of size or location. Jen, can you believe that people still fall for these emails from time to time? Absolutely. Most people are not that smart around this stuff for whatever reason. We still click links. Um, you know, obviously, I, my phone was flooded with a scam around um, open enrollment healthcare yesterday. Um, every okay. 10 minutes, it, it rang, right? And so, obviously, they're calling me because, you know, somebody is saying yes and providing data that they shouldn't be, right? Otherwise... You're I'm talking about robocalls, though, Robo right? Right. So, but, like, any... Like any of these scams, like right. obviously if they're doing them, it, they work at some small factor, which is good enough to make it worth it. Right. No, uh, and you're right. Uh, I actually, it's not so much to me that people aren't quote unquote smart. It's just that we move so fast. No, I mean, it is. And executives, yeah. too. So they're seeing something where they might need to. I mean, that's the way that these emails work. It looks like an invoice or it looks like something that is the transfer of money and it just needs to be approved or there needs to be some sort of signature or something that's really simple for an executive to do via an email. So if it's I, just a, yeah. okay, I'm going to pass this on to accounts payable and yes, my stamp of approval is on it or it gets passed to an assistant that says pay this out or something like that. Like, Look, you and I are pretty cognizant of all of these threats, but I would be lying if I said I didn't click on something in an email where five seconds later I was like, oh, oh I probably sure. shouldn't yeah. have clicked on that. This might be bad. So yeah. uh, it's you know uh, really worth noting that these things are becoming more sophisticated and industrialized. And it, it, it's hard. I mean, we can say as much as possible to be cognizant and don't use email for business, but that's not a practical way of – of going about it like the, the, you yeah just it, it's just something to watch out for but you're never going to be perfect i mean it. look if you're a cfo of a company and and your ceo emails you and asks you to wire money pick up the phone and verify right i, I saw on on facebook a, a photo of an email one of my friends took from her email account that it had their ceo asked her to go out and buy 15 500 gift cards um and and send them the number and email back the numbers and a copy of the front and back of the card, right? Right. Clear skin. Yeah. <laughs> Obvious. So on to other news. Numerous studies have determined that roughly half the population is likely to plug a USB device found in the parking lot into their computer, presenting hackers with an invaluable opportunity to infiltrate sensitive networks. I mean, I just kind of got through saying that people weren't that smart. I mean, <laughs> no, that, of that, USB so. drives are something totally different. <laughs> more evidence. So we should probably avoid that from happening. So Semantic is trying to solve the problem with a USB scanning station meant to help energy, oil, gas, and manufacturing organizations, which often use USB drives to update legacy systems, check for malicious software. The product utilizes artificial intelligence capabilities to scan for malware on USB drives in a way that will increase detection efficiency up to 15%. The devices are scheduled to be available for shipping in 2019 at a rate of $25,000 each. It's kind of expensive. Well, I mean, it is, but then it isn't if you think about all of the fallout that would happen from a critical infrastructure organization being just absolutely hacked by one of these big time uh, ICS malware uh, campaigns. I still um, just can't get past the half of the population would plug in a USB drive. 
I yeah, I mean, there's. I mean, I read that all the time. It's exhausting, right? So funny. It's exhausting to think about, but at, at the same time, this product that Symantec is coming out with, the price tag is one thing, but the idea, I think, overall, is a good one. I mean, USBs inside. Uh, industrial control centers, that happens because everything is air-gapped, but you still have to find a way to update all of these systems. So you're, you're going to end up using USBs. Like, that's just what's going to happen. So you should probably have a way to audit them, scan them, check them, whatever. I, I, 15, I think that that's a good idea. 15%. I mean, that's still scary. Yeah, okay. It's not going to be 100% only because you're going to have nation states that spend a large sure, amount of yeah. time crafting the most powerful malware that we've ever seen. But hey, if that 15% means that you're 15% better in security, I mean, that's a plus. I mean, you're yeah. not getting worse. You're actually getting better. Now, for $25,000 to get 15% better, that is something that, you know, that's the conversation that needs to happen in the C-suite. This, it, it's part of this risk conversation that we talk about so much. A CISO, a CFO, a chief risk officer, wh whatever C-suite person that we're talking about, it's probably multiple people that we're talking about. This is a good test case for a conversation on how you want to upgrade cybersecurity compared to your risk. Will you spend $25,000 to be 15% more secure? That's Absolutely. a conversation that needs to be had. Yeah. So back to our good friend Flash. Adobe has issued an unscheduled patch for a zero-day vulnerability found by researchers from networking monitoring company Gigamon. Researchers say they discovered the vulnerability by analyzing a phishing document and the related payload that was uploaded to the malware repository VirusTotal. The document is made to look like a job application for a Russian health clinic, but it contains a Flash component that exploits the player within Microsoft Word. Of course it does. <laughs> it is meant to execute a piece of malware that sends system information back to the attackers. The malware resembles tools used by Italian offensive cybersecurity company Hacking Team, but Gigamon stopped short of attributing that because many of the company's tools were leaked in 2015, so anybody could have been repurposing this. Jen, please tell me by now that your people have turned off Flash. Um, I thought everyone turned off Flash like a year ago. You're not doing security right if you have allowed people to use Flash. I mean, that's I, mean I mean, I know. we're coming up on 2019, which means we're closer to 2020, which means we're closer to the death of Flash. And it looks like it couldn't come soon enough because people are still being <laughs> hit through Flash. Amazing. Researchers have uncovered the first known security flaw in Kubernetes, a popular open source tool for managing application workloads. Developers published three security updates this week that promised to protect users of Kubernetes, a containerized application system, with a new vulnerability that could make it possible for hackers to inject malicious code or bring down an app from behind an organization's firewall. Kubernetes runs on top of operating systems, taking command from an administrator or developer, and passing those instructions to nodes throughout an environment. This bug warranted a 9.8 out of 10 severity score because it could allow outsiders to establish a connection through Kubernetes' trusted application program interface to backend servers. Researchers encourage developers to update this technology ASAP. Jen, this is a pretty big one. I would say that of all of the things that we covered this week, this probably got the biggest reaction. If you're a developer uh, and you're an engineer, you're loving yourself some Kubernetes. You're loving containerization. This is the hot new thing in IT. Everybody loves using this. So if there's a huge hole in this, 
Uh, yeah, it's a problem. So uh, I would say that this was probably our most widely read story of the week. Wow. But I mean, everybody loves Kubernetes, but I mean, we're talking about holes in open source containerization platforms. Like it's, it's not good. Like not it, good. It, it's just, we're talking, you know, the, the building blocks of a lot of apps that you and I use uh, across the internet and people use inside all types of different companies. So um, if you haven't updated uh, your applications yet, please do it. This is, this is a big one. Wow. And finally, Google's Cloud Security Command Center is now in beta mode and ready for use for all Google Cloud users, the company says, eight months after the tool was introduced. Google's cloud business accounts for about $1 billion in revenue per quarter, so this is a big one. The center inventories business data, identifies potential threats, remediates security issues, and expands existing notification services. The goal is to organize diverse security information into a single web portal where enterprise security administrators can view everything at once. The center also aims to help large organizations better understand where their cloud infrastructure, apps, and data repositories are located. Jen, sounds like Google could help turn this on themselves for some help with the Kubernetes stuff. <laughs> That's terrible. Uh, well, <laughs> everybody's doing a good job over Google with this. And, and this yeah. is, I think, it, it's a big thing because we've talked about data exposures time and time again. And anything that helps cloud administrators better understand their infrastructure Oh, it's this a good could thing. be a really big deal. Yeah, yeah. this is uh, and this is just another part of the cloud wars that we're seeing. I mean, Amazon has the vast market share mm -hmm. and Google's trying to nibble away at this. So any competitive advantage that Google can get, even if it's, hey, cloud engineer, here's a better layout of the way that everything is shaped and here's where your data is and here's how you can protect your data. That, that, that's I mean, all this uh, stuff really thing. matters. So, and if you can be more secure in doing all this, um, it's worth. And not only does it matter so much that it's out there, it, it's the ease by which this is integrated into yeah. everything. The easier we can make security, even on a level where if you are a cloud engineer, you're not a beginner. You, you have a, a pretty good idea of how all of this IT stuff works. So it's not like we're talking get a password manager here. But at the same time, if this helps on, a, on another level, on an advanced level, make things easier, that, that's a good thing. So kudos to Google for this. All right, so now on our interview with Rami. Enjoy. Okay, we're here with Rami Assad, a Syrian-born American entrepreneur and software engineer and the founder and chief product officer of Distill Networks. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So talk to me a little bit about what Distill Networks is doing. So we help companies identify the difference between bots and real people across their website or their mobile app. Uh, we filter out all the illegitimate traffic that's either trying to break in new accounts, that's trying to steal data, um, or trying to influence elections, if you will, um, and only let through legitimate users that are humans interacting with their mobile or website. So that word bot, we've heard a lot about, you know, with AI and machine learning, uh, we hear a lot about what the word bot really means. So I would love to talk about it in terms of context. What is a bot in your eyes? What is a good bot? What is a bad bot? 
So a bot is just simply any computer program that's made to interact with a website, um, the way that a or a mobile app or any kind of program um, in a way that a human does. Uh, so think about um, going onto a website clicking around, moving around, getting content back and forth. If you write a computer program to do the exact same thing, that's a bot. You can do that with websites, you can do that with mobile apps, you can do that with just about anything. Um, and there are some good bots. Bad Bots have been in the news right now um, and in a negative way, but there's a lot of good bots that you have to remember about. Google, for example, uses bots to go out and index the web. They figure out what's on every website so that when you search um, in the Google search bar, they already know, they've used their bots to already know what every website has using their bots. Um, Apple, for example, when you send a text um, and you see the little preview of the content that you texted for the, the link that you sent, they use a bot to go to that website, get a picture, get a little summary, and put that into the text program. So there's a lot of good bots. The thing about good bots is that they identify themselves as a bot. They raise their hand when they go to a website and they say, hey, I'm a bot, I'm coming to do this. Bad bots are the ones that pretend to be humans. They try to do something undercover behind the scenes without you as a website operator really knowing what's going on or the end users that it interacts with without them knowing what's going on. And that's what we saw um, in the news and that's, that's where it gets really shady about bad bots. And how are you filtering out the bad bots and determining it's a bad bot? So for us, what we do, um, we look at hundreds of different signals. Anything from how you move your mouse, how you touch your keyboard, um, where do you came into the site, how you navigated around the site. We um, interrogate your web browser, and we put all of those different data points together into machine learning algorithms to figure out what looks human and what doesn't. You know, some, uh, one simple example is we find that oftentimes bots move their mouse in a very straight line, if at all. Whereas humans don't ever get it perfect, right? Or a bot will click right dead center on every image. Whereas humans gonna click, you know, off to the left or off to the right. Those kinds of little things, you combine them all together and we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of different data points and you start seeing some patterns emerge of where bots look outside the norm from humans and that's, that's what we uh, probabilistically guess to be a bot. And how is that different from CAPTCHA? So I feel like I spend, um twice a day clicking on street signs or on cars and it never it always seems to have me repeat it again right it just never works for me the first time maybe I'm not smart enough to tell which ones are cars yeah so CAPTCHA doesn't try to predict if you're a bot or not what it does is it says this is a challenge to try to um, determine if you're a bot or not based on your interaction with this challenge um, and so what we're trying to do is to be completely transparent, be in the background and predict if it's a bot or not based on behaviors that we're collecting silently. Whereas a CAPTCHA is in your face and it's forcing you to solve some sort of puzzle and um, by solving that puzzle or not, it, it tells you that you're a bot or not. The problem is once, once you have a positive feedback loop, once, you, once a, a, you know, a hacker knows what you're doing, um, once it's in their face, then then it becomes easier for them to break. And that's why um, bots are actually able to get by CAPTCHAs. It doesn't work that well. Um, there's services that allow you to get by CAPTCHAs. There's pr things that you can build into your bot that lets you that lets it figure out the street signs. In fact, um, you know, there's, there's about 10% of people can't solve CAPTCHAs, um, but it, I can build a bot that can get by a CAPTCHA 97% of the time. Um, so CAPTCHAs aren't the most effective way to solve the problem, but that's what we've been using for the last, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, now we're trying to bring that to a, to a forward-thinking evolution at Distill.
What percentage of bots are you filtering out? So, you know, it's hard to know what you miss, right? Um, we, we think that we um, look at, we look at the problem in, in a binary fashion. Are we able to protect our customers and solve the account takeover, the um, social media hacking, the, the thing that they contracted us to do? Are we solving it or not? And for a period of time, usually, we're 100% able to solve it until a bot gets by. And then we actually go in, dig down. We have analysts that manually um, go in and identify bots and, and stop them and then put that feedback back into our system so that we evolve our system. And so we oscillate between zero and one effectivity, um, but we like to say that we stay at one long enough that you know we're, we're protecting you always. And when we go to zero, we put real people on the problem until we get it back to the platform being a one. So I wonder in your eyes, what the landscape looks like right now, because I know Akamai recently put out a report that said there has been a rise in these bots. So I'm wondering if your company is seeing the same thing and what you're doing to sort of fight against the rise because these bots are always learning based on what you guys are doing. So it's a constant back and forth. So I'm wondering how you fight that. Yeah, not only are we seeing more bots, but they're getting more and more sophisticated. Um, mainly in, in reaction to the fact that now there's companies like us. We were the first to invent this category of bot mitigation, detecting bots as a product has been, you know, Distill was the, the forerunner in that. Um, but companies like Akamai have um, come fast on our heels and there's a number of other companies off offering this type of solution. And so the bad guys have had to adapt. But these bots have gotten to be more and more sophisticated than ever and there's more of them. Um, and that's where I say it's an arms race. This is why we're purpose built for this. We have, you know, 150 employees and this is our sole fo focus. Um, a lot of times in, in startups or software development, you build a product once and it's from there on out it's about adding new features. Um, for us, about 30 to 40 percent of our engineering effort is about treading water. It's about keeping up with the current threat, solving the problem um, to the same level that we solve it today. Um, and that's that's a slightly different you know type of business than uh, you know just building it once and then adding new stuff. So if I'm an individual, what can I do on an individual level to keep against these bots committing fraud? My name. Um, stealing my identity or stealing my data and trying to sell it. Yeah, so for us, we are protecting the platforms that the end user, the customer, the, the client like yourself is putting their data into. Um, if you are worried about your information, if you're worried about protecting yourself, then there's some basics of, of good hygiene that you can do. One, know that anything that you put online has a very high likelihood of getting out. Right, so um, don't put anything online that you are not sure about you wanting to have proliferate around the web. Um, second, use different passcodes. Um, if you use the same passcode for every site, there's a very high likelihood that one of the sites that you're using is gonna get breached and that data is gonna get stolen. Right, LinkedIn's been hacked, Yahoo's been hacked, Facebook's been, you know, had, had data harvested, um, Twitter, a, a number of different platforms, Dropbox, I can keep going on and on. There have been four billion username and password combination, uh, combinations stolen online. And chances are one of yours falls into that gap. So if you use the same password, once it gets stolen across one site, it's now everywhere that they, the bad guys have access to. So if you at least use different passcodes in different places, then you're less likely to have one breach impact you enough. And finally, um, use trusted sources, right? The, the internet is a 
wild, wild west of different sites. Um, and be a little careful with what you go after, where you put in your credit card, what types of sites you use, and what types of information you give them. If, the, if big corporations, billion dollar corporations like Facebook can't protect us well enough, this, this one random site that's offering you, you know, $10 less off of the, the blow dryer that you're trying to buy, is it really worth it or should you just you know, go ahead and transact with Amazon because that $10 of savings or that $3 of savings, you don't really know who you're dealing with. And so at the end of the day, I, I, I tell my parents, you know, only shop at the following sites only put in your information and only put in this type of information. Um, if somebody, if you get an email asking you for something, always second guess it. Um, you know, don't fall, don't fall uh, uh, victim to uh, a phishing attack where somebody prompts you to put in information. You know, only, only put in things that um, you proactively go out to, not when people ask you for things. So Facebook and privacy has been all over the news. What would Distill have done to sort of solve that? Well, first and foremost, you know, Distill has been helping social media companies and all sorts of corporations block against bot attacks. Um, the Cambridge Analytica um, hack wasn't ever a hack. What they did is actually harvest information using bots. And so we think that Facebook should have taken their bot problem more seriously. Had they filtered out bots, Cambridge Analytica wouldn't have been able to harvest the information that it did. Um, but unfortunately, social media companies, a lot of which are have a perverse incentive to filtering out bot users because at the end of the day when you look at how the the public markets um, trade on Facebook or Twitter or any of these other social media companies they look at them and say how many users do you have well a user could mean a bot user or a human user and so for them if they filtered out those bot users then they have less users and they show less growth and so um, there's been this weird back and forth poll on whether or not they should be as aggressive as they need to on filtering out the bots. And now they're, I think, recognizing the need to go ahead and, and be a little bit more aggressive. But that's first and foremost, I think, what, what's important is um, filtering out bot traffic to make sure that they can't harvest information. Second of all, it's about um, understanding what fields you're exposing and how. Um, what pieces of, of data are you exposing and uh, you know, do you have the consent of your customers to do that? Right? You can set privacy settings on your profile, um, but they, they expose that data through a search option. But they didn't think of it that way. They weren't showing the data, but they let you input the data and see who came up. But that's, that's just one extra step to get that information. If I put random junk and I get a, data, a, a piece of, you know, a profile back, then I know that that junk that I put in belongs to that profile. So you have to really think through the privacy implications of what data you expose um, and, uh, and not just go for convenience or features or um, usability. You have to be a little bit hardened on uh, making sure that you protect your end user's privacy. So speaking of privacy, GDPR is a big thing that everybody is freaking out about uh, ahead of the, the deadline. I'm wondering, you know, what is your opinion on GDPR and what should we know about it and how does this still really help companies get their mind uh, around what they need to do when it comes to GDPR? So we are having to make sure that we're GDPR compliant because about um, a third of our customer base and our revenue is international. Um, we have a lot of big enterprises in, in Europe that want to make sure that we're GDPR compliant because there is a very big price tag to pay 
if you miss. Um, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars. Um, and so that's the, the biggest reason that people are freaking out is because the fines are so, so punitive. Um, the other reason that people are freaking out is that this was done almost academically without real-world examples. Um, and so people uh, you know, are doing their best effort to comply without actually having clarity of, is this actually in compliance or not? Am I like okay here or am I not? And everybody's literally just waiting for the EU to make examples of some people for us to understand what we need to do. We're kind of going at it a little bit blind and that's um, I think the biggest fault with GDPR. Now the, the benefit of that is, you know, something's needed. There is no online you know, regulation when it comes to privacy. The U.S. right now um, essentially lets you say, you put whatever you want in your privacy policy, and the, we will only punish you if you do something that, is, that it contradicts what your privacy policy says. I could make my privacy policy be that I don't respect your privacy at all, <laughs> and there's, that's totally okay. Then I can do whatever I want, and the government has no recourse there. And so that's not, that's not you know, self-opting to do whatever you want doesn't work well because what ends up happening is it just becomes a bunch of legalese that nobody reads, nobody understands, and it really is ambiguous and allows companies to do whatever they want. What are you talking about? I read my terms of service all the time. <laughs> yeah. Wait, do you read yours? No. Okay. No. I, but I only buy things from vendors that I, where I do trust and do know. Right, um, you know, Apple for its strengths and weaknesses. One of the things that I love about them is that they take privacy very, very seriously. And so I have a lot of Apple products because I know that they do take their privacy extremely seriously. You know, whether it's you know not allowing the FBI to root my phone to not selling my contact my information to advertisers, I know that what I share with Apple tends to stay close to the vest. Um, but but the what GDPR does do is it gives um, end users some say in privacy, which is which is I think a great step forward. Now the problem is that only applies to EU citizens, and uh, so we're kind of being left here in the dark um, in the U.S. I'm really curious to see what ends up happening. My hope is that uh, we take at least the best parts of it and start integrating it um, here uh, in terms of U.S. legislation, but I don't. I don't, after watching the Facebook interrogations um, or interviews or whatever the Senate hearing was, I don't know if our legislature's under, legislator understands, you know, what the internet is, let alone how to regulate it. Right. You, 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 <laughs> tend, you tend to worry about the future of uh, privacy policy when you have senators saying that they're going to email each other on WhatsApp. That doesn't really lend itself to any sort of confidence that we're going to have a law that fits yeah. what the technology industry is or really asking doing. asking the fundamental question of a Facebook of how do you make money? Well, advertising, that's that's what we're here to talk about. You know, like those those fundamental building blocks of understanding what goes on on the internet just aren't there um, to, for them to then take a couple steps forward and, and actually legislate and regulate it. I, I really worry about that. What do you think the regulation should be and who do you think should put it together? That I don't know. Um, I, think, I think we can watch what happens with GDPR and hopefully I, I think it gives us uh, some good and bad and we can take the best parts of that and, and integrate it here internally. Um, that's, that's what I would um, suggest as a, a best next step. Let that launch, give it you know, three to six months out in the wild and see, see what happens and let's take some parts that work. Right? For example, 
the, the right to be forgotten is great for the most part. Right, um, the, the, that part of the GDPR says that any user, any client in uh, in Europe can go to any site and say, "What do you know about me?" Okay, now I want you to delete it all, um, which is great because one of the big fears of everybody is like, "Hey, what you do online is there forever. Be careful what you do." And you know, you have kids that are doing dumb things that are going to follow them throughout their life. I think that's a great thing um, to to have. However, me as a cybersecurity professional. I don't want to have to comply with a bad guy that comes to me and says, hey, you know that I'm bad. I want you to delete everything you know about me. Well, no, I, I, I caught you. I know that you're bad. I'm now protecting all my customers from your bad actions. I don't want to delete that. Right? And so there's nuances that uh, for every good thing, there's some, some negative aspects of it that we, um, that we still need to work through. And that's why I say uh, let's give GDPR a few months and, and see where, where things land. Great. Anything else? What do you think the next big cybersecurity attack is going to be? Yeah, I, I think we're going to continue to see web applications under attack, and those web applications are going to have more and more breaches. Right now, we're in a world where um, the bad guys aren't uh, are, are making tons of money, right? They're not interested in you know this is no longer um, people hacking for fun. You know, when I started in cybersecurity, I started because it was funny. Right, I was a kid. I was a teenager. Where I thought it was a game to see, you know, can you can you break into something? Can you, you know, just just the sport of it? Um, but but now security is a is a criminal enterprise, right? Um, and and so there's real money to be had. And so we're not seeing destruction for the sake of destruction. I think we're going to see the next two years. Um, go the, the, down the lane of more breaches that, that result in more data being compromised, which results in more fraud. We're going to see um, you know, more extortion uh, where data gets encrypted and, and people get extorted. Those kinds of things, that, that the same attacks, but just over and over and over again because there's going to be money to be made there. Um, I think eventually um, where people are going to really be hurt or where things are going to get stepped up is when this becomes... Uh, national, where, where we talk about um, state actors that, that take it up a notch. And, and Ukraine is a perfect example of what we're seeing here. Um, when, you know, you can, you can disrupt nuclear plants. I mean, we, we took out a nuclear reactor, you know, with a virus in, in Iran. Um, Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, like what, what's going to happen when you start taking out power grids? What's going to start happening when you take out um, some, some, you know, things that we're all used to, especially as more and more things get connected? When, when state actors really hit cyber um, and start hitting us, I think that's when it's going to be um, a, whole new, a whole new world where, where we actually might see some fundamental change in how we approach the Internet in general. Well, whether it's the rise of bots or critical infrastructure, I mean, we know that, you know, you will be on the forefront of this. So, Rami, appreciate you coming by and talking with us a little bit about this. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Rami. Thanks again to Rami for taking the time to talk to us about how bots are a problem everyone needs to be worried about. Talk to you all next week. As always, stay curious.